Welcome to Hope for the Heart. This is William Rogers bringing the message today out of the book of Revelation as we continue studying this wonderful book and as we continue teaching verse by verse through this entire book. Chapter 11 marks the very uh, middle of the book and uh, that makes it exciting for me, not because it's the middle, but because I have always favored this particular chapter. And I believe you'll see some of that as we go through this, so I want to uh, read you the context today. And it's found in Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 13 and a few verses after. And in that hour, in verse 13, the word of the Lord says, In that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and forever. What a powerful statement. But the the timeline here is changing as far as what we're following through. We're not in a chronological order. Every chapter laid out is what's going to happen next in 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 the living out of the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. We're going to find that this is... This gives us to a certain point, and then it's going to go back and cover some things that it did not cover. And so that's going to be an interesting part of this, and I don't want to lose you in this. And so I'm going to kind of build my way through this this lesson today so that I can better give next week's lesson. This lesson today, I want to begin by going back to Revelation chapter 11 and looking at this measuring out of the temple. This appears to be an act of defining the parameters of God's property we talked about. It is saying and symbolizing the fact that this telling, showing John that this belongs to him, or better, uh, it it tells who belongs to him. In fact, it would be easy to understand that God is saying, I'm going to measure out the people of the temple, the people who worship in it, the people who whom it belongs to, and that is Israel. And so I believe if we understand that God is measuring off Israel for some protective or preserving favored or uh, chosen position, then we kind of get the idea of what's actually happening here. Now, let's look at those who worship in it. Who would that be? Well, it would be the Jews because the Jews in the time of the Great Tribulation will be drawn back to this. And that we, we even mentioned, well, they don't have a temple now, but that's going to be during that time. The temple building does not have to happen before the, the rapture of the church. I know I've gotten several questions on that, and I'm going to probably cover that in a, a, a prophecy update here soon. But remember, nothing has to happen uh, for the rapture to happen. This all, is has, this all is implying what's going to happen for the Jews. They want their temple. They're ready to get in their temple. They're ready to worship again. And so this is just telling us that they will be back in their temple. And then we have the measuring out the temple. What it means is it means that the plans that God has and the purpose and the redemption of Israel is being exemplified here by showing John and telling John to measure that temple. So in Revelation, John, in the, in the asking to measure, he measures out a temple for the tribulation in which I believe God is going to begin to initiate the longing in the hearts of the Jews as they go back to their worship patterns of the Old Testament. That's how they'll start. And I believe God is going to turn their hearts in that old worship pattern through the abomination of desolation that's going to happen and all that's going to be there. I believe that he's going to turn their hearts to uh, seeing the real uh, picture and the real purpose 
for the worship in the temple. And they're going to, as they cry out for the true lamb who can really take away their sins. So in the midst of it, they will be bombarded by the witnesses, uh, the 144,000 sharing the gospel. So God's going to use all of this in turning the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. Then in the midst of the week of their temple, it's going to be desecrated, we said, by the abomination of desolation. Uh, the Antichrist is going to take a seat in the temple. And I believe all of that is going to be uh, working uh, to, to enlighten the Jews. All of this is going to be used uh, towards turning the hearts of the Jews. Uh, during these uh, 1,260 days or these three and a half years, these people, the 144 and, and the two witnesses and all, are going to be preaching repentance, warning about judgment, and proclaiming the gospel. And I believe all of these work together to lead Israel to repentance because that's what this is all about. That's really the purpose of the tribulation period is to finish the 70th week so that Israel can be redeemed. And then we're, we're going to look at it in a moment. All of Israel will be saved. So what God is saying, uh, especially in verse 2 where he's told not to measure the outer court, I believe what God is saying is I have no plan, I have no obligation by promise to redeem the Gentiles. I do have an obligation by promise to redeem Israel, even though many people today teach that the church has replaced Israel and Israel has been set aside permanently. That's not true in my honest or my evaluation of this. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. He says, that's not mine. That's not part of the purpose of this promise. And so I, I think that's laid out for us very carefully. And I think that the time of the Gentiles has shown a domination uh, of, the, 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 of the Gentiles over the city of Jerusalem. They've never maintained control from the uh, uh, destruction of the temple and the, in, in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem during that time. Uh, even Daniel talks about this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, uh, that in the tribulation period, the Antichrist sets up his throne as God and he sets out to rule and he will move forces of the world against the city of Jerusalem. So they're going to have a lot going on. And then we find out about these two witnesses. And these two witnesses we've talked about uh, are one standing by the Lord to whom the, the Holy Spirit will flow continually flow continually for what? Towards the redemption of Israel. That's what we see here. We read that God will have these two witnesses. They're going to be called olive trees, lampstands, and we know exactly what that means, don't we? That God is getting ready for the salvation and restoration of the nation of Israel. Or Israel. God is in the midst of renewal and bringing them to repentance. And so these final two witnesses, the olive trees, golden pipes, or as it talks about in Zechariah, it won't be by human power or human might. They will be used to bring about restoration. I believe these two play the primary and culminating role in bringing Israel to salvation. And I believe we have it exemplified for us here. They become the most powerful preachers to bring the redemption to the last part of Israel or the remaining remnant of Israel as we, uh, as we know that will be there. And so I think we look at this and we, we see that this is exactly what this is talking about in the measuring of the temple. And then we get into these two witnesses. But before we do, 
uh, I want to remind you of something, and this will be a way of a, just a, a little jet detour off for just a minute. Revelation, I mean not Revelation, Romans chapter 11 verse 25 talks about the fact, Paul brings up the fact that all Israel will be saved. And so he gives us this in, in that section. Uh, it does says, I don't want you to be ignorant uh, or be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening of has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. All Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant. And he talks about this and that they can't, they can't be called back. So the little phrase there, so all Israel will be saved, is a very important one to come into this text with so that we may begin to understand exactly what we're seeing here. Because remember now, these witnesses have been given, they have a time frame, and we know because of the time frame and when they start, by the time they we get to last week's message, or by the time we get to 11, 12, and 13, verses 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 11, that the end of the tribulation is here. Uh, that is the end of the tribulation, and there's a few more things that will actually happen at the end, but... All Israel is, 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 is talked about as being saved by Paul. And so it's a very important understanding that we come to this because we will understand the fulfillment of God's unbreakable promises to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many, many times the Lord reiterated these promises again in the Old Testament. One of those examples is, is Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to hear this because it's so powerful. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Now here's what that's saying. Uh, you would have to read this in your own and go back and try to digest this. But let me give you the gist of it. In other words, what God is saying is there is nothing that is going to cause me to turn my back ultimately on Israel. That promise is as sure as the fixed order of the universe, the immeasurable immensity of heaven, in other words, and the secrets of the depths of the foundations of the earth. You can't measure those. And so what God is saying is, I will never, ever depart from them. Isaiah 62, and you know, many of you know that the last 20 chapters of Isaiah talk about the restoration and the coming uh, of the, the greater days of glory for Israel. But in Isaiah 62, 6 and 7, Listen to what it says there. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and night that they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What he's saying is you just keep petitioning God until God acts and restores and redeems Jerusalem and makes praise in the earth. And so these are verses that talk about this. Isaiah 66 talks about this. Uh, as far as Israel becoming uh, blessed by God as far as the, the future glory of Israel. And then in Isaiah 66, 10, it says, Be joyful with Jerusalem. Rejoice for all her, all you who love her. Uh, be glad because 
God is doing something in the latter days. It's going to bring salvation to all of Israel. That day when Israel will be born in one day, and you, you have to remember now, you, you, the question is, has God cast away his people? And the answer is no. A thousand times no. When I hear people say that God has permanently set aside the nation of Israel, I just wonder how much of the Bible are they leaving out? Because the time of Jacob's trouble, which is the tribulation time, which is what we're studying now, will become the time the, the time of Jacob's salvation. And that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a turning here in the scriptures so that we can begin to see God using the 144,000, God using the temple, God using uh, the two witnesses all to turn their hearts. This time of Jacob's trouble will be will become the time of Jacob's salvation. This is the confront the confronting the confronting truth of Revelation chapter eleven. This is the theme, I think, of this chapter, at least the very first part of it. So in chapter uh, this chapter we see is we're in a pause, we're in an interlude, and that pause is meant to assure us that God will be gracious. And I believe that during the tribulation period that Israel will be saved and the last events of tribulation will be the great movement of God that causes the most immense reaction in Israel to saving truth. Now, we know there will be 144,000 Jews that have been saved. We got that, right? And they have 144,000, these are actually 144,000 witnessing. I've heard people say it's like 144,000 Apostle Pauls going around witnessing. And that may be very well close to the truth. They've been sealed to witness during the seven-year period. They're protected. And already we know they've had a major effect just by looking at uh, Revelation chapter 7. So, these are going to be used in preaching and bringing that. So, when you look at these two witnesses, and we looked at this last time, why were they killed, where they were killed, uh, and I believe they were killed because they were living, they were in Jerusalem, and the, Jerusalem is the place uh, of, the, of, of this prophecy being fulfilled, and it's the place of the great majority of the preaching goes on, I think, will be in the hub of, of Jerusalem, because I believe they're the instruments of God used to proclaim the saving grace to Israel in the end that causes Israel's ultimate belief in the Messiah. So they're there in Jerusalem. We saw that already in, in, this, in this section. Uh, we find it in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, and the dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So he identifies it clearly as Jerusalem, and that is where we are at this point. So, with that in mind, I want you to see something that we're looking at here, and that is at the end of verse 13, it says this. It says, uh, the, after the earthquake killed 7,000, and then it says, a comma, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, what is that? What is that that we're actually talking about? Because we're talking about something here that I think could be identified and needs to be identified. We've already discussed the purpose of the, 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 the temple, the purpose of the two witnesses, the purpose of the 144,000, all of this working towards, and the, the whole purpose of the tribulation period is that is, Israel be saved, that their hearts be turned back to the Lord and there will be repentance. Repentance. 
Now, verse 13, and we're terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven, gave glory to the God of heaven is a very interesting phrase. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's hard to absolutely be dogmatic, but the best approach to see it is I believe that this is, and I want you to hear this, this is after the death of these people, these are, this, the rest here is referring to the rest of the Jews who are then living, they're coming to faith in the Messiah. That is what I think. And could it be that we are actually seeing the fulfillment of what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 11? Could that be that this, the rest were terrified and gave glory to God? Could that be the remnant that is left coming to faith at this time in their Messiah, coming to faith in their Messiah? I believe that it is an appropriate point uh, for them to finally fulfill Zechariah that we looked at, to look on him whom they have pierced, because that hasn't happened yet, but it's getting ready to. Remember, we're at the end of the tribulation period at this point, and I'm going to explain why the book keeps going in just a minute. But they're in Jerusalem, and certainly the dominant population of Jerusalem is Jewish. It's an appropriate way, I believe, at the end of verse 13, to describe Israel's salvation. I mean, the rest of the world, back in chapter 9, if you'll flip back, if you have your Bible open, the rest in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, uh, says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Does not repent. They don't repent when the sixth trumpet comes. And beyond that, they're hard. Their hearts are hard. But here, these were terrified at this destruction and what's happened here with the resurrection of these two witnesses. They're terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. The others refused to do that. They refused to glorify God, and they, in turn, blasphemed God. Now, I think the Jews in that moment do what the Gentiles have been asked to do throughout this whole period, which is in Revelation 14. I want you to read that. Look, look at this, and this is going to be just a little flipping around, but in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says, uh, Revelation 14, 7, He said with a loud voice to all the tribes and tongues and nations, Fear God and give Him glory. Fear God and give Him glory. I think that is what is the message. Uh, It's tantamount to believing, to saving response. Fear God and give Him glory. But what does that mean? Well, I want to give you another verse to just show you where this is where this is going. In chapter 16, verse 9, it says something that's very interesting. It says, And the men were scorched. This is one of the bold judgments. The men were scorched with fierce heat. Now listen to what happens to them. They blasphemed the name of God. Listen to this. Who has the power over these plagues? And listen to this. And they and did not repent so as to give him glory. Do you see that? So giving him glory is the same as responding with fear and repentance. You got that? That's what they don't do. So they don't repent, so it's referred to as they do not give him the glory. Now follow me here. I believe then at the end of verse 13, when it says these in Jerusalem... Uh, in, in, in chapter 11, verse 13, when it says, uh, and the rest were terrified and give glory to the God of heaven, that 
this is a, re- a saving response. I think they were fearing God, worshiping the true God, repenting of their sins because this is how glory is given to God. And those who and those references, I think, prove that out. Giving glory to God is an appropriate response. They had heard the preaching of these men for a long time, three and a half years. They have heard the preaching of the 144,000. The gospel was available to them, and finally in that moment, God turns their hearts, and they get saved. I think that's really what we're looking at. At least I think it is. You, it, it sure seems that way to me. And I want to take you back to Luke 17. Luke 17, uh, remember the cleansing of the ten lepers? I know that's found in two other books, uh, Luke and another one. I can't remember right now. But Luke 17, he says to the ten lepers, one of them came back. Remember, he turned around. He says, your faith has made you, your faith has saved you, is what, it's, what he's saying. But he says this in verse 18. Where are the nine? Was not one found who turned back to give glory to God, except this one. And he defines giving glory to God as your faith has saved you. So, there again, I use that to help draw upon the the meaning here in verse 13 of chapter 11 of Revelation. But in John chapter 9, it says basically the same thing. In Acts chapter 12, listen to this. The most remarkable account. Immediately as the angel of the Lord struck him, that's Herod, it says, because he did, did not give God the glory, he was eaten by worms and died. Wow, you think, wow, my goodness. So giving God glory is proper worship. It's the proper response. It's the proper fear. Or you could say it's the proper repentance. That's what's happening. And I believe here, in fact, could it be that here in Revelation eleven thirteen we see a descriptive of true faith? Could it be that this is the point of the culmination of Israel's salvation in Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. You see the interlude, chapter 14, I mean chapter 11, verse 14. Look at, look at what it says in the next verse. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The second woe with the sixth trumpet. And then after that, rapid fire bowl judgments comprise the seventh trumpet and make up the end. And then the Lord returns. And so I, th- I think what this is saying here is this is basically the end of this. This is basically the end, and immediately after verse 14, is we begin something else. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the third woe that is coming, and the context gets very confusing. We see the, thr- the three final woes. Uh, the, we've had the trumpet five, trumpet six, and now trumpet seven. The first woe was in chapter nine. The second woe was the last part of nine. And so we, uh, the, we, we are coming here to this. And now in chapter 11, verse 14, we come to the third woe, and the third woe is the seventh trumpet, as verse 15 indicates. So this gets to be where it's confusing, but it doesn't have to be, because I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can. But the moment now that encompasses the final completion of the whole plan of God for the present universe is the culmination of God's judgment. So in chapter 10... In the days of the voice of the seven angels, he is about to sound. The mystery of God is finished. You remember it said that? In chapter 10 of Revelation, verse 7, 
So the seventh angel marks the finishing of the mystery of God. The trumpet signals the answer to the prayer through the through the through the whole church age. Thy kingdom come, and that's what's coming. It's the kingdom. This announcement. Uh, this announces the action that brings the consummation. So when the seventh angel is blown, what happens in the seventh angel uh, blows that trumpet, all of the rest of the book of Revelation happens. So you can see how important this is. It goes all the way into chapter 20, into the establishment of the kingdom, and into the uh, everything that follows that. So this is a very important part of this book. This section then embraces everything involving the completion of the whole redemptive plan of God for this universe, including the final harvest of the judgment of earth and the final fury of the the judgment of God pouring out his wrath. It will include the seven bold judgments, his fierce judgment on the ungodly, the setting up of his kingdom. All that is going to flow out of the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So you say, with this last section, it's like, wow. So from here on, we move into the final phase of judgment right through chapter 22. So for just for a second, I want to show you something. In chapter 15, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 15, I want to show you something. It says, uh, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are, are the last, because in, in them... The wrath of God is finished. Uh, and then in 16.1, look at this. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath of God onto the earth. So these seven bowls, which are the final wrath, are included in the seventh trumpet. Now, we are looking at this all the way through. So when you go back to chapter 11, and you look at verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven. We're seeing as that angel is about to sound that trumpet, voices in heaven make this loud noise, and really they're praising the sovereignty of God. But we don't see what happens on the earth or what happens after that. But what happens after this in in chapter 11, verse 15 and 16, is chapter 16, verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath. So you can see, that's, isn't that interesting? That in chapter 11, verse 15, there's, I guess you could put 12, 13, and 14, and, and part of 15 even, into a parenthesis. And it begins back in chapter 16. And so that makes it very interesting that this is happening like this because you, you've asked, you have to ask, well, uh, what, what about what is actually going on in, in chapter, uh, actually chapters 12, 13, and 14? What, what about those? Well, we're going to, we're to take a look at those. We're going to take a look at those. But those are a bit of a digression going and taking us back to the beginning of the uh the time of tribulation, so we can look at these. Chapter 12 is going to be talking about uh, the great sign in heaven and Lucifer and Satan. And then you're going to have in chapter 13 the rise of the Antichrist as he is taking over. And then you have the the uh, Satan and his uh, uh, trinity that, that we're going to be seeing. And then you have chapter 14. 
And, and these take us back. But when we get to chapter 11, we're at the end of the tribulation period. Very little actually has to happen in that actual part. So we're going to take a look at uh, uh, 12, 13, and 14 by going back into the tribulation period. And then we're going to look at 16 as we're in is what is going to actually conclude the judgments. And then we're going to look back at, at what all happened at the same time of those judgments by looking at chapter 17 and 18. And then, of course, the Lord comes back in chapter 19. Now, I know, <laughs> I know that can sound confusing because you're looking at 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, all this. Don't worry about that. I just gave you that so you can see that chronologically speaking, uh, when we get to uh, chapter 11 of Revelation, verse 14, it kind of pauses there again. It's a, it's a pause to show us the reaction in heaven and then to take us back by digress, digression and look at chapter 12, 13, and 14. And then we're going to pick it up again. And so that is, a, in fact, you're going to find chapter 12, 13, and 14 are just packed with information. I mean, packed. And so you see why they added them. In fact, most of what you probably know about the Antichrist is going to come from Revelation chapter 13. Most of what we find out of Satan's activity during the tribulation period is going to come from Revelation chapter 12. And then most of what we find out about the other part of the judgments, which is the what's going to take place on heaven and on earth, and even the angel that's going to fly around giving a gospel, which is somebody else preaching the gospel, is going to come from an angel. We find about that in Revelation chapter 14. And so it, it becomes a very interesting thing to look at all this, but this particular section in Revelation chapter 11 I think the whole chapter, all the way through verse 13, is looking at the, the saving of the, the last remnant of Israel coming to salvation. Now we know, and I know, I'm not forgetting this, that at the moment of their salvation, we're going to see an amazing thing happen in the book of, uh, in the book of Revelation. We're going to see something that's going to happen, and it's going to describe it for us, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to forget that because that's very important. In other words, there's going to be a reaction here of these redeemed. They're going to speak, and what do they say? Well, they're going to speak when the Lord breaks through heaven, and we're going to get a chance to hear their actual confession. Wow, is that going to be something? Because it is so amazing. And then I want to just show you one other thing, and it's found in Acts chapter 1. I'm not Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter, uh, I think it's in chapter 2. Uh, actually, it's not in Acts chapter 2. Isn't this funny? Uh, it's talking about their repenting. It says in, in Acts chapter 3, verse uh, 18, But the things which God has announced beforehand by the mouth of his prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he should thus be fulfilled. Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped out, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of ancient times. What that is saying in Acts is, I know that when they confess, we're waiting for them to actually repent, and then the kingdom will come. Well, they haven't repented yet. 
That's why the kingdom hasn't come. I don't care what people say. Some people say, well, the kingdom's already started. We're living in it, or I've heard all kinds of crazy things. But until they repent, you can't have the kingdom. So when they do repent, then it says the times of refreshment, which is another way of saying the restoration or the kingdom itself will come. And that's found in Acts chapter 3, verses 18 and following. So I wanted to just throw that in. I hope none of this is confusing. It's complicated. Dealing with eschatology is very difficult. It takes a lot of time to piece it together. And that you'll never find me being dogmatic about the, chron- the, chron- the chronology of it, uh, laying it out. But there is some chronology to it because we see it, uh, a chronological order that we, we can just kind of see there in it. But the, some of it, you can't place it. So... With that in mind, for now, this is William Rogers. And again, I thank you so much for listening to Hope for the Heart. And get ready for next time. We're going to plow into this last part of chapter 11 and take a look at what's actually going on in heaven by looking at the sovereignty of God being praised in heaven. Uh, Boy, that says a lot. So uh, for now, this is William Rogers. And again, I thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.